Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. God's Word is alive, it is deep, it is powerful, it is profound. When God encouraged the faithful church in the book of Revelation, He encouraged them because they had kept the Word of God, they had a little strength. They had kept the Word of God and they had not denied His name. Keeping the Word of God is commendable. When we say, what does God's Word says? Today, so many people are saying, follow your heart. Don't worry about what the Bible says. The Bible is outdated, it's antiquated. It doesn't have authority. But the Bible is our authority. And if we follow our heart, we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. If we follow other people's hearts and what the ungodly say, then we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. But if we follow what God says, we'll be able to have the strength to do all of the things that God has called us to do. We'll have the power to be able to stand up and do those things that he wants us to do. So it's really good to see you guys here. This is again, our Q and A. If you have a question, then you can write the word question out and then write your question, reread it, check it a couple of times, make sure that it says what you think that it says, and then we will go ahead and take the question in the comment section and uh, take a look at it. You can ask questions about the Bible, about prophecy, about your own personal life, about nuances within the Christian life. We like to take time and really look deeply into God's Word to see what it says. So our first question was asked a while back, why did God harden uh, the heart of Pharaoh. And of course, this is in a couple of places in the Bible. We have it in the book of Romans, and we have it in the book of Exodus, and it's referred to a couple of other times. But here's what people think, that Pharaoh was going one direction, and had the plagues happened, that if God had not hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he would have let the children of Israel go, and the plagues would have never have come up on Egypt, that God had determined that it was going to happen, so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But as we're gonna see, that's not the way that things laid out, and that God gives people real choice. It doesn't mean that I can't make decisions that would cause God to strengthen the decisions that I've made, to harden those decisions. But if I also have an open heart towards God, God will reinforce that towards me. Let me bring up a couple of scriptures here that I wanna show you. Uh, we'll start in the book of Exodus, and this is God saying that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring the enemies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. God was judging them for hundreds of years of mistreating Israel, mistreating the people around them. There were other reasons that God wanted to judge them. Now that's God telling Moses to go, that he's gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. Now it's important to understand that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. There is a doctrine called open theism where they believe that God doesn't know what's gonna happen but he makes pretty good guesses, but he really doesn't know. God knows everything that will happen. This is omniscience, he knows it all. Some believe it's because he's looking down the corridor of time and he sees it all and he sees the decisions that we're going to make and so he predestines us according to those decisions. But I believe that God lives outside of time. 
and that time is moving along and God is watching the whole thing from a unique perspective. He knows the decisions that we're making and he responds to us based on how we make those decisions. So that when I say, Lord, come into my life, then God transforms me because he said anyone who believes in him could be saved. The Bible told, told us to choose who we would believe in. And if we believe in him, then we'll be saved. So here we have another passage. This is says in, in Exodus 7, 13, and, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed, uh, heed them as the Lord had said. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. This is Exodus 7, 13 and 22. Two times that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. So his heart grew hard and because his heart grew hard, God had said beforehand that he was gonna harden it, but he knew that his heart would grow hard. So eventually we would have a passage like Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So now Pharaoh's heart is not just being hardened, but he is actually hardening his own heart. And then we have passages that tell us that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we see that Pharaoh's heart was hardened first, and then Pharaoh had hardened his own heart, and then God reinforced the hardening of that heart. Now, listen to what it says in Romans 9, 17 through 21, talking about this. It says, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Now, God is sovereign and he has the choice to choose who is going to believe and who is not going to believe. God could do it any way he wanted to, but God chose those who believe in him to be saved. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. But God gave men a very real choice. And if you call out on God today, then you can be saved. And, and, and who it says, God will save whom he wills. And we know that God saved those who believe. That's what God has said. It goes on to say, but indeed, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Why is the theme form say to the thing who formed it? Why have you made me like this? He's talking in this passage about not just choosing Israel, but choosing the Gentiles and Israel who will call on his name and believe. And that there were some Jews who believed that because they were Jewish, they were saved. But God had chosen those who would believe on him. And who are you to say God can't do it that way? That's the narrative that's going on in Daniel chapter 9 that so often is ignored by people that say that God randomly chooses one to be saved and one to be lost. God chooses those who believe and rejects those who don't believe. And we find that in so many places of the scripture. And it says, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay in the same lump to make a vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And the answer to that is yes, God has the right over the lump of clay to take the one that doesn't believe and make it into a vessel of dishonor and make one who does believe and make it a vessel of honor. Now the accusation that we get when we talk about instead of God just choosing to harden, Pharaoh, harden Pharaoh's heart uh, because he chose to do it, but that God responded to Pharaoh's heart being hardened and Pharaoh hardening his own heart, the response that we'll get is that we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. 
That's because they define sovereignty as something different. They define sovereignty as God doing whatever God wants to do and whatever God wants to do, he will do. But God is so sovereign and wanted to give you a choice to choose to love him that he let men make the choice. It doesn't mean we take a part in salvation. It doesn't mean I'm taking the first step in salvation. God draws me and I respond. Bible says no one comes to the son unless the father first draws him. And I can't save myself. I can't jump high enough. I can't do enough things. He finished the work on the cross for me. I am totally lost and unable to save myself, but I can receive the free gift of God for eternal life. And that receiving the free gift is not meritorious. Does that have any merit to it? I'm just receiving it. God isn't saying, oh, because you received me and you did that great work, now I'm going to save you. No, the Bible clearly says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And if your heart is hard and you can't hear from God, why is God hardening your heart? The scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders were another case. They rejected, rejected, rejected the Messiah, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus began to teach in parables so that they wouldn't hear and believe. He used another route instead of hardening their heart. He hid it from them so that they could not believe because they had crossed a line. Pharaoh seems to have crossed a line. And so God hardened his heart. Can it be that after your rejection, your rejection, your rejection, that you would harden your heart? And could that be the unforgivable sin? So I want to welcome you guys here. It's really good to see you uh, as you've joined us. Uh, we are, are taking time now uh, to answer uh, your questions. Let's see. Well, I really messed that up. Well, all right, let's just go here. We're taking time to answer your questions. So if you have a question and you would like to uh, ask on any topic of the Bible, then that has to do with the Bible, about faith, about living for him. We would love to hear your questions. Uh, we're taking one question per person. So um, go ahead and uh, put your question in, write the word question in front of it, write it out. You can put the Bible reference. We could take some time to look it up. Sometimes that helps to give us the answer on confusing things. And we will take time to take your questions. Good to have you guys here today. So our second question today is from Jari. Jari has really first, since I brought the first question with me. Um, Jari says, is it possible to block your you, uh, you or someone else's blessing if you don't pray for someone to get healed or have a spouse? Am I blocking the person from being blessed? Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm thinking, Jari, more in the lines of what this biblical maybe worldview is, if that's the right answer. Is it possible to block your or someone else's blessing if I don't pray for someone to get healed or have a spouse? Am I um or or have a, or to have a spouse, am I blocking from being blessed? Thanks. I'm thinking maybe it's looking at it the wrong way. So, and, and, and I, and, and I, I've heard, I've heard teachers like this, Jari, that, that look at it this way, like God sending blessings to everyone. And if people would just get out of the way, then God would bless them. And maybe there's things you're doing and you're in the way of God being able to bless someone. 
The Bible never paints a picture that way. And this is why I say that biblical worldview isn't correct. Now, when you look at your question and you think about it, is it possible to block someone else's blessing? No, I'm gonna say no. If God determines he's gonna bless somebody, he's gonna bless them. Is it possible though, that you could pray for someone and because prayer is powerful and the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, that God will bless someone because you prayed for them. That's the biblical view. It's not the Christian, false Christian worldview that there are all these blessings that are shut out there and people are getting in the way uh, and blocking those uh, blessings from being out there. No, instead it should be God wants to bless. And one of the venues that God has used to bless people is prayer. So the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man, the Bible says in the book of James, accomplishes much. It needs to be effective, which means we're praying for the will of God, something that he would want. It needs to be fervent, the effective fervent prayer. And and we need to be right with God when we're making those prayers. We just wanna make sure we evaluate where we are. It's one of the first reasons that when I pray, I pray that I would be forgiven and that I would forgive those who offended me. It's one of the first things that I pray when I start to pray because I want my my life right with them. And then I begin to pray for people. And as I begin to pray for people, then God begins to, to bless and to use my prayers to work in people's lives. It may even ultimately be a blessing but God's gonna do something difficult for that person to eventually bring about that blessing. So I've heard this teaching before and I I don't think it's biblical. We don't see God shooting out blessings and those blessings not getting there. Now in Daniel chapter seven, or is it nine, we see Daniel praying for 21 days and an angel being hindered by another angel and finally getting through on the 21st day, which would tell us the importance of praying through. And we generally don't think of prayer as spiritual warfare. And if it is spiritual warfare, and I think it is, then we need to pray through. And so we actually get the answers for what we're looking at and wanting to do. Sorry, I ate some pistachios before I came on. Hold on. All right, so anyway, our prayers can be very powerful and I do think they're spiritual warfare and we need to keep praying until we get it. But as far as blocking someone's prayer, your you, your prayers could be hindered if you are not treating your spouse right. The Bible says that some have their prayers hindered for not treating their spouses right. But this whole concept of blessings being blocked by you or by someone else is odd. Uh, I I, th- I think, um, I don't know if I want to say it's a false teaching. It's just a false idea. Maybe it's a false teaching if they're teaching it, that God's shooting out blessing and we're blocking him. No, God wants to use you to bless the world around you the same way that Jesus was promised that he would bless the world around him. All right, thank you, Jari. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question from Brianna. Brianna says, good to see you, Brianna. Brianna says, what is the biggest difference between Christianity and Mormons? All right, Brianna, why don't we ask something that'll only take like three minutes? This is gonna take a long time. No, I'm kidding. I I can kind of cover it quickly. Um, There's a lot of differences between Mormons and Christians. Uh, First of all, Christianity 
was founded by Christ, who was the promise of the Messiah, who came and fulfilled passages that were foretold in the Old Testament as evidence that he was the Messiah. And then he died for our sins and rose again that we could have everlasting life. Mormonism was founded by Joseph Smith, who believed he received a message from God that Christians were anathema. So now that Mormons want to be seen as Christians, they, they can't be. They'll say, we're the same. They try to say, we believe what you believe. Uh, for, for decades, over 100 years, they've been saying that we're anathema. But now they want to be seen as just another sect of Christianity, but they're not. Why? Because Joseph Smith gave prophecies that didn't come true. Because Joseph Smith added prophecies to the word of God. And the Bible gives us strict warnings against that. If you read in the, in the um, Bible from the Mormons, go to the end of Genesis and you'll see him actually writing things about himself, but there are no manuscripts for, he just wrote it. He also instituted the idea of polygamy, which was carried on by, um, by those in the future. I'm trying to think of the next leader's name. Um, it'll come to me in a little while. Um, it was carried on in the future. Now, as far as Mormon doctrine goes, they believe that Elohim was a man on a planet who progressed to godhood, so he got his own planet. And there's some woman that married him, many women that married him, and they're in heaven now in physical bodies having sex to make spiritual babies to populate the earth. And a couple of those first babies that they had were Jesus and Satan, and they were brothers. Now, they're going to argue this to say, well, we, they, we would be brothers of Jesus and Satan too because we're all from the same spiritual mother and father. Well, you're not because you might have a different spiritual mother. And, and both Satan and Jesus progressed until Jesus finally became the Messiah and Satan was rejected and he went out to attack what God was doing by being rejected as the Messiah. That is so not what the Bible says. It's so far away from scripture. Now, that just begins to barely touch on it. And so um, a while back, we had Dallas Jenkins from The Chosen, which I, I, I like the program. There are a few things I don't like about the program. I think it's probably gonna be the case with any pastor who has spent a lot of time in the Bible that you read and you go, why'd you do it that way? I don't like that they add a lot of things in that Jesus didn't say. And so they're making a lot of guesses and sometimes it's getting them into trouble. Uh, as I understand it, the one of the executive directors on The Chosen is a Mormon and that's caused them some problems. And then Dallas Jenkins said, uh, I will die on this hill that Mormons and Christians believe in the same Jesus. And he said that while he was being interviewed by a Mormon and then that got out. And he never, he never backtracked on it. He said, I will die on this hill. Mormons and Christians believe in the same Jesus. Then he came back later on and said, well, what I meant was I have friends. And when they talk to me about the Jesus they serve and love, I realize they're Christians and they're serving the same Jesus. That's not what he said. He said he would die on the hill that Mormons and Christians serve the same Jesus. The Jesus of the Mormons is the brother of Satan. I think it would just have been so much better had he come back and said, I made a mistake. And now the new trailer with the third, for the third episode has Jesus saying, I am the law of Moses. I am the law of Moses. When it was in the Book of Mormon that Jesus said, I am the law. And he never said anything like that in the Bible. And so the question comes up again. 
Now, did they read the Book of Mormon and try to slip that in there? Probably not. But are there Mormon influences? And could they be bringing suggestions up? And could the consultants that they have there not have caught it? Maybe someone being Mormon bringing a suggestion that he would say something like that? I, I think maybe. We as Christians need to know the distinct difference between Mormons and Christians. Mormons do not believe that you are saved by faith through grace. They, uh, they believe that an angel Moroni came and gave additional books, the Doctrine of Covenants, the, um, the Book of Mormon, and, um, and another one that they believe are the Word of God. And they're not Christians and they need to repent of just like anybody else. And they need to believe and receive him in order to be saved. Now, is it possible that Dallas Jenkins has a friend who is a Mormon, but they don't believe in any of that other stuff? And they do believe in Jesus and they gave their life to him. And they don't know what Mormonism, Mormonism believes because a lot of times they might not know. Could that person be saved? Sure, why not? It's not what we claim to be that saves us, but it's whether or not we know Jesus. So if this guy really knows Jesus, but don't you think if he really knows Jesus, that God's going to reveal to him the error of the things that he is believing. Now, um, let's see, Brianna, a couple of, of resources for you. Uh, there are two people online that have done some great work on, on Mormonism. Uh, one of them is Alan Parr, and he's, he does a, a show called The Beat on YouTube. And another one is Mike Winger. Uh, he's got a show called Bible Thinker. Uh, and you can go to BibleThinker.com or you can go to his um, his podcast. And you can be able to listen to his stuff there. Um, I want to, one of the things I want to do is put out some um, content on Mormonism and the Jehovah Witnesses as well, since these are, are the two biggest groups that are out there and people have questions about them. But both of these guys have content on them. It would be easy to search for them just even in any search engine. You don't have to go to YouTube. Search Alan Parr and what Mormons believe. His stuff's going to come up and also Mike Winger stuff. Both of these guys are good, trustworthy guys. You can listen to what they say and you can learn a lot more about them. All right. We should, um, we should understand it and know. Um, I hope, here's what I hope. I hope the chosen does great. I hope that they get through this little bit of a mire here and they reaffirm Christianity solidly without any other controversial statements like I am the law of Moses. I hope God uses them. There's a huge group of people that are, are influenced by it. I have people who will come up to me and ask me, have you seen the chosen? Because they're really moved by it. So I'm praying for them. And I'll, I'll encourage Dallas, Dallas Jenkins will never see this since I've said this several times, but I encourage him just openly reject Mormonism. Why not? It, it, why not say it's a cult and we don't believe it? Then we'll know where you stand. But when you say, well, I don't want to speak bad about other people or about other religions or other groups, really? You don't want to speak the truth about the difference between Islam and Christ and Mormons and Christ and Jehovah's Witnesses in Christ? Why? What's the hesitancy? That's all that concerns me. And I'm praying for him because I believe that this could be used in a great way to move people to surrender their lives to Christ. All right, Brianna, sorry to get off on the whole chosen thing. I realize you didn't ask about that. Um, 
but uh, I really do appreciate your question, and I hope that that was helpful. Um, the Mormon Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. Our Jesus is not. The Mormon Jesus was born of as a spirit baby, as long as well as Satan and everybody else, to mother, you know, whatever they call, you know, I guess father God or mother God or whatever they call her, um, and and not um, not us. Huge differences. They don't believe you're saved by grace through faith. Uh, they believe many different things. All right. And um, there's a lot of resources you can get on that. And as I said, I gave you a couple of them. You can start going and really looking through them now. So it's good to see you guys here. Good to have you uh, join us. I hope that you guys are having a great day. So um, we have a question from John P. John says, I am trying to change a, um, a Roman Catholic Catholic's mind about praying to Mary and other saints. All right. Um, yeah. So obviously Catholicism has the very foundations of the Christian faith in it. You have the death of Jesus on the cross being born, born of a virgin, um, rising from the dead, uh, uh, trusting and believing in him, receiving him. Now, if they mean the same thing that we mean, that could all often be a question so that there are within the, the Catholic Church those who believe, those who are born again, those who are truly saved. The, the question of how do you deal with someone who's Catholic and praying to Mary or praying to the saints or going through any other number of things that they do that are extra biblical that we really would like to see them stop. The reason that they do it is because they have other authorities. First of all, we have the Bible and the Bible alone. And this is where Sola Scriptura came from. The reformers saw what the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was doing, said, we don't want to have any part of that. It's Scripture and Scripture alone that we believe in and nothing else, Sola Scriptura. But they take traditions and put their traditions as high as the Bible. The problem with their traditions is there's all kinds of them that are so wrong. And so you have the Bible, which is the word of God, and that we can go in and search and check and see, and has been attacked over centuries, and has stood fast, and we believe it today, and it has stood fast against the attacks because the things that are written in it are true, and you have tradition, which is full of all kinds of difficulties and problems. But here's the thing. If their authority is from tradition, then you're arguing with them about two different things. So I have a friend of mine who's Catholic and I've talked to him about praying to saints or praying to Mary, and he comes back with tradition. And as long as you guys have a different basis of what's your authority, then you're not really gonna be able to come to a consensus. So you've got to kind of back it down a notch. Rather than talking to them about praying to Mary is wrong or praying to saints is wrong or saying the rosary is wrong or our fathers over and over again or confessing to, to a priest is wrong or having a priest is wrong, the first thing you've got to do is come back to what's the authority? Do you believe the authority is God's word? Or do you think tradition can be put alongside of God's word? That's where you go. You back it up to that point. And once you establish that, then you can say, well, what does the Bible say? 
and we, we don't care about what tradition says. If you can't get them off of tradition, then you're just going to have to try to extend a hand to fellowship. And here's what I've done with, with those that I've talked to who won't back off of tradition. I ask them, how are you saved? Because part of the Catholic Church is some of the statements of the Catholic Church is that you are saved by the sacraments. Are you saved by the sacraments? I, I'll ask them. Are you saved by receiving Christ? When you say receiving Christ, do you mean receiving communion? Or do you mean that you've actually asked him to come into your life? The Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And now you're moving away from things that are less important. They're wrong, I know. But less important than praying to Mary and praying to the saints is their salvation and what the authority is. And if you're ever going to get someone to break away from those things that are wrong in Catholicism, then you've got to get back down to what the authority is and what the authority says. And if they choose not to do that and they want to remain in Catholicism, but they have received Jesus as their savior, well, then you're not saved because of what you believe that's wrong. You're saved because what you believe is right. So if they've genuinely made a commitment to Christ, then we'll call them brothers and sisters. And I could tell you when I see a couple of friends that I have uh, that are Catholic and I've talked to them about their own salvation and being Christians, I greet them as a brother in Christ. And I'm rather excited to see them. And I don't know where they are in what they believe about any of those things, but maybe I'll still be able to have an influence when I can have conversations with why do you believe what you believe? Why does the Catholic Church say to pray to Mary? Because the Bible doesn't say it. Why does the Catholic Church say to call a priest father when the Bible says don't call anyone Jesus? Jesus said don't call anyone on earth father. So when you can start looking at those and come back to the authority, then you can find yourself being much more effective in sharing your faith um, with those who are either our Catholic brothers and sisters or who, who aren't. And if you're Catholic and you're listening to this, I'm not trying to offend you. I don't hate you, but far from it. I just want you to, to know what the truth is and not to be caught up in something that is wrong. And if you, you are listening to this and you're Catholic, have you received Jesus as your savior? Do you think you're okay just because you went to church? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And some will cast out demons in my name. And some will, um, some will say, we've cast out demons in your name and we've healed in your name. He'll say, away from me, I never knew you. You have to know him in order to be saved. If you don't, that's what Jesus said in John 17, three, uh, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. In fact, I wanna pull that up just because I think sometimes it's really powerful to be able to see it, what Jesus says about eternal life. And this is John 17, three, and I wanna put this up on the screen for you. And so here, uh, Jesus is praying, uh, after the upper room and he's seeking God for his disciples. And then in verse three, he says, and this, it, well, let's just come back and read this a little in, in context. Um, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may be glorified, may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And the, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the, the one only true God and Jesus Christ. So when you believe in him, you know him. How many has God given him? Anyone who would believe in him and know him. Those are the ones who would be able to receive it. 
And so if you are Catholic and you're listening to this, uh, then I just encourage you to give your life to Christ and then pray about those other things. What's your authority? Is your authority tradition? And if it is, then what makes that difference than other things that you've had tradition in and been involved in? All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Um, and we have another question here. And I hope uh, that you have great success in being able to, to get them to really see, to be biblical about the way that they believe. So we have a question from Motocross. And um, I used to Motocross. It was a lot of years ago that I used to Motocross. And I crashed more than I didn't crash. Um, so um, Tina says, question, after the rapture happens, and, re and return with Christ and reign with him, will we be allowed to marry and have families? Uh, Tina, this is, as we take a look into the future, you're thinking about earthly things. God's thinking about eternal things. We're moving on with God. And so the answer to this is no, I realize that, and I realize here that you say God will allow you to marry and have families. Um, See, I don't know if you're married now or not, but the question that I usually get is, will I be married to my husband or my wife in heaven? Um, no, Jesus said that when we are in heaven, just think about it, when someone dies, someone is now free to marry. Why? Because the death has annulled the marriage. It doesn't mean that we won't be friends with our spouses in heaven. It doesn't mean we won't have a special relationship with them because of the children that we've had with them. It just means the earthly relationship is done and you are going to have a glorified body and we're going to go on with him and we are not going to have families. Um, we're not going to marry. Uh, there, are, there are going to be far greater things that God's doing. So what's greater than that? Those are awfully great things. They are awesome things, but these are the things that God has for us in eternity. We're not going to have pets. Uh, there are just uh, several things that we get questions about that we are not going to do. All right. I realize. Hey, look, I think that the relationships that we have in heaven with those that we've had here on earth will be incredibly profound and meaningful. And I think that we will have relationships in heaven that are incredibly profound. Tina, if you are not married, which I'm not sure um, whether or not you are. But the answer to that question is no. Uh, Jesus said we're like the angels that don't marry nor are given in marriage. All right. So we have a follow-up from Kimberly. Uh, Kimberly says, follow-up, do you think the hardness, I've got to stop doing that. All right, do you think the hardening of man's heart is the same as God giving over to a reprobate mind? Romans 1, 28. No, I think it's, I think it's different. I think the hardening of the heart is when well, it does say deliberately. I've always considered them to be different. I'm going to put it that way, just to start with. I've always considered them to be different, to see the hardening of the heart as an individual who God's trying to move in, in his life, but his heart gets hardened and he hardens his heart and then God hardens his heart. And that if we're the opposite and we soften our heart, that God also works uh, within our lives and, and softens our heart. Let's see here if my, um, my do not disturb is on. Um, I got my computer making noises here. So 
I, if you hear diddle-ink, I'm just going to let it go. Hopefully it won't happen again. But I want to go to Romans 1. You said Romans 1.28. We'll probably read a little bit more than that and take a look at what's happening here. And I think that we can get a little bit of help. So, um, all right. So we're going to start reading Kimberly in verse 26. Uh, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Let's go back one more. Uh, Let's go back to verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in lust. Let's go back a little more. Let's go back to how much of this do we want to read? Um, Let's go back to... All right, let's go back to verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, eternal, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So telling us that the, his creation, people know that there is a God and they are without excuse. Okay? His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. So knowing they were rejecting God, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So yeah, I guess here now their hearts are darkened because they reject the light that they've been given. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory uh, uh, glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, like birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Uh, These are things that they worshiped. It sounds to us like, evolution but in their day these are things they worshiped maybe god didn't mean to put that secondary thing in there for us but originally it's it's idols therefore god gave them up to uncleanliness in their lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen for this reason god gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged natural use of what is against nature likewise also their men leaving the natural use of a woman burn their lust towards one another with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their own error which was due there's a lot here i'm skipping over that i'm not just i'm not talking about just trying to get to this and even as they did not like to retain god in their own knowledge god gave them over to a debased mind to those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual malice, wickedness, covetous malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, disconcerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things deserving of death not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Quite a passage uh, that's there. Um, As I read through that, Kimberly, yes, I look at it and I see, especially the passage that you brought up, 28, makes a lot of sense. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. So as they are rejecting God, fighting against him, resisting him, it looks here that that's a good example of God hardening someone's heart. It's because they did that, that God did that. See, because they, and even though they did not like to retain God, the knowledge of God, then God gave them over to a debased mind. So they did it, and then God did it. And I think that is a great example of them hardening their heart. Good stuff, Kimberly. Uh, Good insight. All right. So we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. 
Albert says, hello, pastor. Jesus encountered demon-possessed people many times, but it appears there was only one time that he asked a demon what its name was in Luke 8.30. Do you see a significance in this? Um, yeah, perhaps. The, in fact, the Bible says that Jesus went around the Galilee casting out demons with a word and, and not allowing some to speak because they knew who he was. So when he arrives on the Gadarean seashore, which is the reference you're talking about, and they get off the boat, there's been a man there who's been in a cemetery. Sometimes they've caught him and chained him up and he would run around naked, scream and harass the people around them. And when Jesus pulled up on the shore, the Bible says the man ran towards them. And you, you wonder what the disciples thought when they looked up and saw this man running at them naked and demon possessed. And he comes and falls down before Jesus. What, what, do, you, what, what, what do we have to do with you? In fact, I want to go to this passage here uh, just because I want to make sure to look at it correctly. Um, so this is Luke 8.30. We have a teaching that we did on this whole section by the way, Albert, not that long ago, um, eight, and then I'm going to go to verse, we'll go to verse 30 to start and we'll see where we're at there. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to bring this up on the screen, Albert. We'll, we'll read our way through here and then we'll come back to your question. All right. So um, it says, they sailed to the country of the Gadareans, which is opposite Galilee. And when they had stepped out onto land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, felling down before him. And with a loud voice said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you not to torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. For it had seized him and was kept in guard, bound in chains and shackles, and broke the bonds and was driven about, oops, go back here again. Let's see where I was. Um, seized him and was kept under guard and bound him in chains and shackles and broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked, what is your name? Now let's come back here a little bit. Um, let's see. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do, Son of God? And I beg you, do not torment me. For an unclean spirit had come out of him. For he had been seized and kept under guard. Uh, Jesus asked, What is your name? All right. So what I'm what I'm looking at here, and it's legion, of course, for we're many, and then he cast them out of the pigs, and the pigs run down into the water, right? So that's the remainder of that of that story. But what I'm wondering about, Albert, here is, is when I take a look at it, I think that, I don't know whether it's in Luke or one of the other Gospels, that Jesus cast the demon out of them. And there's still demons there. And so Jesus says, what's your name? And then he says, we are legion for we are many. And so it's the casting a demon out, but the guy's still demon possessed that causes Jesus to think it. Now, I'm pretty sure about that. I don't have time to be able to go to go look all up all of them up. But maybe that would be something for you to do, Albert, if you're really interested in this. Go and look at all the accounts. See what it was that prompted Jesus to ask him his name. Now, I've pointed out before, you don't have any demon possession deliverances in the Old Testament. 
but you have Jesus doing this all the time, which speaks of who he is and the authority that he has over um, over demons. But I think there's some significance to that there because he had authority over them, spoke, uh, cast them out without a name. Jesus also talked about casting a demon out and then I'm going in seven friends are coming back in and the worst being seven times worse than before because they hadn't, I think, given their life to Christ is, is what's really being said there. All right. So again, uh, thank you, Albert. Uh, Tim, good to see you. If you are new here, welcome. If you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write out your question a couple times. Then go ahead and submit it. The Bible, um, apologetics, uh, difficult passages in the Bible, what look like to be contradictions. Uh, we'll, we'll look at all of those. And if you have the reference, go ahead and add the reference in. We'll take a look at the references as well. So Tim says, uh, Pastor Robert, can you help me explain to someone the difference between worldly hope and godly hope, such as we find in passages like Romans 8.24 and Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Um, let's go there first. Let's go to Hebrews 11.1. If I was confident in my quoting it, I wouldn't go there, but I'm gonna go there. Um, uh, we'll come back here in just a minute to that. Let me go ahead and, and put this up on the screen for you. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So God gives us his word. By faith, we believe it. And now we hope for it. Okay, so faith is the substance of things hoped for. We're hoping for heaven. And faith is the substance of what we've hoped for. We put our trust in God and that gives us what we're hoping for. And it's the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the evidence that we have that of things not seen because we put our trust in God. So I like that. All right. And then let's look at your other um, your other verse here, Romans eight twenty four. Let's pull that up. Romans eight twenty four. I'm gonna try to think of that before I get there. So Romans eight twenty four, uh, great passage, right? It's it's, it's um, if God's for you, who can be against you, right? It's all of that. So Romans eight twenty four. I'm going to take a look here. Um, it says, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. So if it never comes to pass, it's not hope. For what does one still hope for what he does not, for what he sees? So once we receive it, the hope is done because we're living in it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's the faith in which we hope for those things. All right, so I like those two passages. So your question specifically was how to explain the difference between hope that is in the world and the and godly hope that we find in those passages. And Tim, I, I would love to get your definition on what hope in the world is, what you would say hope in the world is. So um, hope in the world. I. I hope I don't catch a cold. I hope I win the lottery. I, 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 I hope my mom's okay. So these don't have, are not rooted and grounded in anything of substance. Like faith is the substance of things hoped for. So there's, there's no passage behind it that helps us to understand it. Like, oh, I hope I win the lottery. Well, I don't know that you're going to win the lottery. Might not be the best thing for you anyway, but there's no substance behind it. There's no promise in the word of God. But when you read a promise in the word of God, then there's hope that's connected to it. Hope in the Bible 
and, and you were talking about it there, has some surety to it. It's not, the hope in the Bible is not just, I hope so. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I go to heaven. No, there's surety behind it where there's a lot of unsurety with the hope of this world. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I don't get hit by a car. You're hoping on this other extreme end where with the hope that's in the Bible, you're hoping in what you've got promised within the word of God. And that gives you substance to what you're hoping for. So I think that if I were going to explain to someone the difference between hope in the world and the hope that we find in scripture is that hope in the world is hoping for something good to happen without any promises or anything behind it. But the hope that we have has some substance behind it and comes from the word of God. Okay, Tim, I hope that that's, um, that that helps. If it doesn't, you can ask a follow-up question. And even if you don't get the follow-up question in today and can't get an answer today, um, we can answer it at another, um, at another session. All right. Um, if I, if you're listening to that and not quite clear on what I was talking about there. All right. So we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly says, I think this is your first question, Kimberly. Might be the second. No, you had a follow-up. All right. Um, hi, Pastor. Is the difference between anger and frustration having hate in your heart? Uh, what is the difference between anger and frustration? So anger, you're angry at someone. It's part of our fight and flight, right? We get angry. We either run or we fight. Um, we have outbursts of anger. I've never heard of anybody having an outburst of frustration. Um, being frustrated with someone just means they're doing something that's starting to drive you crazy. It's getting under your skin. Um, you're being frustrated with them. Um, is it having hate in your heart? I, I don't know whether it's having hate in your heart or not. Um, if you're frustrated with someone, I'm going to say you don't have hate in your heart. If you have hate in your heart, then that's hatred. So maybe I do like it. It's funny, both both of your follow-up and this question, I start off by saying, no, I don't think so. And then came around to thinking, yeah, kind of makes sense, right? If you're frustrated with someone, doesn't mean you hate them. But if you hate somebody, you got hate in your heart. So yeah, I would think that that would be, that that would be the difference. And probably not the only difference between hatred and frustration, but I think it's at least one of the differences. All right. Thank you, uh, Kimberly. I appreciate that. So Annika has a question. Annika says, why does the Bible talk about God having a righteous right hand? Psalms 48.10. Do right hands have a symbolic significance in the Bible? And I'm going to say yes to this, Annika, that at the right hand of God, you're the right hand of his strength. Um, most of us are right-handed and could do far more with our right hand than we can our left hand. And so I'm going to say there is a significance to uh, when the Bible uses the term the right hand of, of God. Uh, let me go ahead and go to Psalms 48.10. Let's read it as it is said here and see if we can make any more connections. Um, you could, again, one of the ways you could study this, Annika, is to go and um, and find every place in the Bible where it talks about just look up right hand, look up the word for right hand, and then you could look at every place in the Bible that says it. I'll show you how to do that here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and look up Psalms 48.10, and um, then I'll give you a little Bible study lesson. Psalms 48.10, 48.10, okay? 
So according to your name, oh God, let me go ahead and put, let me put this up on the screen for you. All right. Uh, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Yeah, I do think that is significant as opposed to his left hand. It's like the right hand, it's just it's, it's the power, it's the strength, it's the right hand of God, and it's full of righteousness. And I think that that is awesome. Um, let's just go here. I'm going to go here in my Strong's Concordance. Let me get you back over here so I'm not doing it in front of you. Um, and Annika, Psalms 4810, right? So let's, let's go there in my Strong's. And if you don't have the Strong's on your um, on your phone, it's really easy to download and it's free. The version I get is free. There's one you can pay for. The version I get is free. In fact, let me show you before I do this, what that looks like, all right? So let me just show you this, my phone, a snapshot of my phone here. Uh, and you can see on here that there's the Strong's Concordance down here. I think that's the one you pay for but the one that you don't pay for has the icon like that up there, all right? Like that up there, <laughs> all right? So that's the one you wanna look for, all right? So when you do go to Strong's, I'm just gonna walk through this with you. Um, when you go to Strong's, you go to, to you, you work your way down to Psalms, then you go to uh, 448, it's pretty easy to navigate. And once you get to 48, then you're gonna go to, what, what verse was it again? Uh, Psalms 4810. Then you're going to go down to verse 10. Now here um, you go to the word, thy right hand is full of righteousness. So you're interested in the right hand. Does the right hand have any significance? So you click on right hand and it is the word right hand or side of a person or other object and more locally, the south, the left-handed, right to south. Okay, so sometimes regarding it as south, which is interesting. Now, if you go down a little further, you see that it gives you all of the occurrences of this word, which is 3231 in the, whoops, I touched it. Let me go back. What did I do? Let me see if I can just go back. Yeah, 3231, that's the word. It's the yamin, and it gives you the pronunciation there. But if you go down further now, you can see how it's been translated as it makes your way through. And it gives you every occurrence that, it, that it's been used in. Look how many times it's been used. Sometimes here, five times as his right hand, uh, five times as on his right hand. You can see all the ways that they've done this, okay? These are all the occurrences of right hand in the Bible and the way that they've been translated it there on the right. So then if you want to go and see, and you could break, you could take time to look at every one of these. You could go to, you just start at the top and just go, these are two occurrences. So you got Psalms 144.8 and Psalms uh, 144.11. So you go to Psalms 144.8, uh, whose mouth speaks vanity, their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. And so now you're just starting to get an idea as to how the Bible uses that. And then when you come back, and I, I won't keep going through them, but when you come back now, let me get to my Bible. Sorry to do that, and that's the wrong Bible. We'll just do this. Um, so when you come back then, you can just make your way down and you can look at how that word is used. And it's so helpful to be able to see all the places in the Bible where that word is and then how it was translated because you start to get an idea of how the word is used. And it's just so very helpful. And a lot of times when I'm answering a question and I say, I think it is, I wanna look some things up, that's one of the things that I wanna look up. 
I want to look up how the word is used, where else it's used at. That's very helpful in Bible studies. When you can say, there's another passage where this word is used, and here's what it means in this passage. So you can go to that passage and see how the translators handled it. You could also then go into your U version. You could bring it up on your U version and look at the different versions of the Bible and the way that they dealt with that word. All right. So no extra for the Bible study tip there, Annika, but I do believe that the right hand is significant for strength, for um, for quickness, just for, is a significance. It's, God is righteousness is in His right hand. Yes, some good um, some good insight there. All right. So again, good to have you guys here. If you're here for the very first time, good to see you. I, I know that a lot of you guys watch and don't ever say anything. Uh, I think next Saturday, maybe next Wednesday, not next Wednesday. I think maybe I'll have you guys put. What, what city you're from, just so we get an idea as to where you may be, all right? And um, I, uh, and, and and we'll just kind of make some connections. And some of you guys that are on that don't say hi, I'd love to have you say hi. I do take a look at this role a little bit later on. Um, Kay says LDS with a question mark. Uh, I refer you earlier in this actual Q&A. Uh, we talked about the difference between Christianity and um and mormonism all right um so all right i appreciate you guys um keeping the chat here on point you guys have done a great job since i brought that up um rather than kind of being all over the place and talking about all kinds of other things i'm letting this be a time we can talk about the questions that are asked helping the people that have questions maybe adding something other than I said, I think that can always be helpful. And um, so we have a question from Daru. Daru, good to have you here with us again. Daru says, the angel of death to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians. Did God release that angel for a particular event and then lock the angel back up again? Thank you, Daru. I appreciate that. Um, we just don't know. There's a lot that we don't know about the angelic and demonic world that it is a mystery in a lot of ways that there would even be a death angel. Is this death angel good or bad? Is it a, a good angel that was like, I'm going to job, I'm going to kill all the firstborn. I'm going to kill the firstborn of, of Israel too that doesn't put the Passover lamb over them. Or was this an evil angel? It's like, goody, I get to go kill the firstborn. What about the angel in Ezekiel that comes up with a plan to go get a guy? It looks like, and, and some have said that this is the counsel of God. Um, and is this angel locked up? Again, I just we just don't have enough information. We don't know. I assume, I'm going to tell you what I assume, Daru, so just take this as just me assuming, not scriptural at all. I assume that this is an angel that's a, that's a good angel that God sent on this journey, and he was faithful, and that every person deserved to die, uh, every, every one of the firstborns that died deserved to die uh, for various reasons, sins maybe in their life, in the lives of their parents, the rebellion against God, judgment against Egypt. Uh, we are not told that any of the children of Israel had their children die, although it could be possible if they did not keep the firstborn as well. And there may be something there about humans deserving death. You're condemned already. Jesus said, if you don't believe you're condemned already, it's not really the unbelief that condemns you, it's you're, you're already condemned and you need to believe to get out from under that uncondemned. 
So it's not when you reject, it's when you, you're that you are already under a condemnation. All right, so thank you very much. We have a few more minutes here, uh, one more minute. So I'm gonna have one more question and then we're gonna be done. If you have other questions that are on here, I'll take a look at the chat log later on and see if there's any of them that I can use for the first question for this up and coming Wednesday. All right, so we have a question from Renee. And if I don't have time to answer your question, Renee, I may use it as the first one. What about doing a Christmas nativity play before or on Christmas day? Is it okay? Thank you, Pastor Robert. That's very easy, yes, uh, more than okay. It's great. I think it would be awesome. Um, if it's something that you want to do, you know, we've done nativity. We've done nativity. We've not only done nativity scenes at our church. We've done massive nativity scenes. We took our whole parking lot for years and we turned it into a town of Bethlehem. And we had Roman soldiers and we had the wise men. And even we, we know it's not that same night. We had shepherds, we had babies that, that were actually played baby Jesus parts, not just dolls. Um, we did all of that for years. It was so much work, but it was such a blessing. And I really appreciate the people that did that for so long. We don't do it anymore, um, but I do think that it's good. All right, so first of all, great questions. I love how our questions are getting deeper and more profound and that we're taking time to really look into the word of God and not that there's bad questions. I'm not chiding you for having a question that would be bad, except when you ask about the millennium a thousand times. Other than that, I'm okay with uh, with the questions that you guys give. Um, but I do really think that this is such a good community that we're building here, being able to answer these questions. I love you guys. Uh, we'll see you on Wednesday, uh, Lord willing. Uh, oh, you know what? I'm not doing, I'm not going to be doing a Q&A this coming up Wednesday. Uh, I'm also not going to be teaching Wednesday night. I'm taking a night off. I need to have a night off. I'm feeling a little bit of the burnout. So I'm taking a, a, a night off, but I'll be back next Saturday. And um, next Saturday is when I'm going to ask you guys uh, to give us where you're from. All right. And if you're just logging on and um, not saying hi, I'm going to ask you to say hi. Of course, you don't have to, but I'm going to ask you. All right. So love you guys. God bless you. Stay close to Jesus. Keep his word. Remember the faithful church? They, they, kept God's word, they didn't deny his name, and they had a little strength. Keep his word. It, it causes us to be faithful. God has given us his word, not for us to ignore, but for us to keep. God bless you guys. I'm out. We got a service in about an hour. We are going to be looking at the trial of Jesus and Jesus presenting himself. Jesus uses the trial to make a statement of his divinity, of being God. A lot of people will say that Jesus never said that he was God, but I want to show you today a couple places where Jesus spoke of his divinity. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on. I'm out.